This is Counselor Toolbox, bringing you practical tools for recovery from mental health and addiction issues. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. CEUs are available on demand for this presentation through our sponsor, All CEUs. Go to allceus.com slash counselor toolbox to register. This is our second class in a series on the biopsychosocial impact of addiction. And this time we're talking about on the family and community. Last time we talked about the biopsychosocial impacts of addiction on the individual um, to help individuals understand that it's not one simple fix. It's not an easy fix. The substances impact them biologically. Um, it impacts their health. It impacts their sleep. It impacts their relationships and their um, social relationships and their work product and all that kind of stuff. When you have someone who is functioning, if you will, suboptimally, it's going to have effects on the people around them and possibly the community. And we're going to take a look at how that happens. So we're going to identify the biological, psychological, and social consequences of addiction on the family and community. Okay, so when we talk about um, the impact of addiction on the family, you have the obvious things. For example, putting people in situations that are potentially hazardous to their health, having children in the backseat when you go pick up drugs, um, driving under the influence, those sorts of things. But there are also more abstract or subtle relationships between individual addiction and family problems. Um, Some of them include the children having poor relationships with adults, not only the adult addict, but also maybe the adult enabler, the um, adult law enforcement, clergy, teachers, etc. Because addiction creates the situation where it's don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. And I'm getting ahead of myself there. Children learn that they're supposed to protect the family secrets, and they see anyone who tries to, quote, help them as being an interloper or being someone who might destroy their family. Additionally, the children um, probably don't have a really good relationship with the individual because the individual with the addiction is not emotionally available most of the time. They can't deal with their own emotions. They can't deal with their own stress let alone take on anyone else's stress. So a lot of times they are probably emotionally absent, even if they're physically present. This isn't all the time. You know, you've got some addicts who are binge addicts, binge drinkers. They will be sober, well, not sober. They will be clean all week long, but they're just stuffing all those emotions. And then on the weekend, they get drunk from the moment they leave work on Friday, and they stay drunk or high until... It's time for work on Monday morning. So we're not necessarily talking about someone who is under the influence 24-7, 365. It's important to also understand that, especially with little children when that happens, it's very confusing. Why is mom or dad, you know, different during the week? And then on the weekends when I'm home from school and I want to spend time with them, they are unavailable. Children, especially younger children who are still seeing things very egocentrically, take it personally. And they start to think, well, maybe if I was better, maybe if I did something differently, this parent would want to spend time with me. 
which takes us down to lack of social competence. The child starts to doubt himself or herself, um, so they don't reach out, develop other relationships, learn how to form healthy social relationships because they don't have any models of healthy social relationships, which sort of compounds on itself. So now you've got this small child who starts to wonder if the parent's erratic behavior is their fault. They have a lack of social competence, a lack of sober social support, a lack of healthy social supports, a lack of understanding of how to form a healthy relationship. So they're kind of on their own. And I've said before that our social relationships are one of our biggest buffers against stress. So you have these kids, and yes, kids can support each other. Um, you know, not as good as some adults, but right now you've got a child who doesn't trust adults very much, and they're really not able to form relationships with children, so they've got nobody. Imagine how scary that is for a six, seven, eight-year-old to be dealing with life on life's terms all by himself. I know a bunch of adults who can't deal with life on life's terms all by themselves. And, you know, my personal opinion is we shouldn't have to. We are social creatures. So they have a lack of sense of well-being and safety. They're stressed all the time. They don't know when the bottom's going to fall out. They don't know what they're doing. They feel like they're kind of walking on eggshells to keep the family together. And they're trying to figure out how to function in a relationship in a family system that's very chaotic. The family relationship is unsupportive. If you've got two parents or two, you know, other people in the family, whether it's a parent or a grandparent or whatever, um, involved in the situation, a lot of times they may try to protect the child, if you will, and isolate them from some of the drama. And in so doing, the child feels even more rejected and pushed away. It feels like an even more distant relationship. Additionally, those helpers, enablers, family members, whatever we're going to term them, um, are probably pretty overwhelmed trying to figure out how to cope with the addict's behavior. So they are overwhelmed. They are kind of struggling to function with life on life's terms. The addict is not able to function with life on life's terms. They're trying to protect the child, but if the child is not acting out, likely he or she is just kind of blending into the wall at this point, which in another class that we do on um, families, of addicted families, we talk about the different roles. And you can Google it. If you Google addicted family roles, you'll find roles like the mascot, the hero, the enabler, the scapegoat, and the lost child. Those are really important to understand because this helps you understand how each child interprets what's going on and deals with it in their own way. And it can also help you forecast future problems. So if you have a lost child, that's going to be someone who, you know, kind of blends into the background. They don't feel like anybody notices them. Um, so we're going to have to teach them how to identify their wants and needs, assert themselves, and figure out what makes them happy. Right now, they're just trying to disappear. Which brings us down to inappropriate coping models. And we'll go back up a little bit to inconsistent parenting. Uh, if the addict has some days where he or she is not using as much, 
or not using at all, and some days where he or she is using a lot, or, you know, it may just kind of deal with, be, be related to how the wind blows. Some days the parent may pay attention to little Johnny's behavior and reward it or punish it. Other days, little Johnny can do whatever the heck he pleases and nobody really pays attention because they're so focused on the addict. So this inconsistent parenting sets Johnny up to take more risks. It gives him the opportunity. He's like, well, it's a big risk, but two out of three times I get away with it. So let's take a shot. Inappropriate coping models. Um, Little Johnny sees the parents coping, if you want to use that term, with stress by using, by avoiding, by sleeping all the time. He doesn't observe problem solving. He doesn't observe frustration tolerance. He doesn't observe planning and long-term goal setting. So you have this child who feels rejected doesn't have a sense of well-being, doesn't know how to form good social relationships, and doesn't know how to cope with life on life's terms. All he knows how to do is try not to get swallowed up by it. Where do you think this kid is headed in 5, 10, 15 years? Probably down a very similar road. When addicts come to treatment, a lot of times they fail to see the impact or they fail to be aware, consciously aware, of the impact of their addiction on the family, on their children, and on society. Most addicts that I've worked with would rather do anything than hurt their children. They don't want to have their children suffering or unhappy or experiencing what they're experiencing. So one of the ways to help them get motivated to get into treatment is to help them see that right now what they're doing is hurtful to the child. And as a clinician, we have to balance how we put this out there. We don't want to overwhelm the client. We don't want to push them away. We don't want them to feel like we're judging them and saying you're a bad parent um, because they're doing the best they can with the tools they have. But they need to make some changes. And so we can use these in order to increase and maintain motivation during the recovery process. Biological influences, stress and stress-related illnesses, whether it's just because of financial difficulties or arguments over use or, um, you know, maybe the addict disappears. Um, My cousin was addicted to crack cocaine for many, many years, and she would drop off the grid for, you know, months at a time where nobody could really find her unless, you know, they went to some of her haunts, but she was not accessible by phone. She was not accessible to any family who really still cared about her, which caused a lot of stress, distress, and family conflict. Um, So this adds up for the people who really do care about the addict. Um, And it can lead to things like high blood pressure, ulcers, sleeping problems, etc. Failure to attend to children's physical needs. Um, And I will stop at this point because I want to point out that I'm going to cite a lot of statistics here. And in the 
course exam. I don't quiz you on statistics. Um, that's not what's important to the client. I want you to get the larger concepts of what we're talking about. The references for the statistics, however, are at the end of this presentation. So if you want to see where I get some of these numbers from, um, you can research it from the references at the end of the presentation. Um, but don't get all caught up in remembering numbers of millions of dollars or percents. So that being said, and that's true for all my classes, um, failure to attend to children's physical needs. If a parent is completely immersed in their addiction, then they may not remember to go get annual physicals and shots. They may not remember or even be able to think clearly enough to get nutritious food to have in the house or to do laundry. I have two children right now, and it amazes me how quickly they can go through some laundry. And, you know, I'm doing laundry like literally I do one or two loads a day. So I can't imagine what it would be like for a parent who, you know, is basically struggling to survive just to keep themselves alive and keep their children alive, um, to have to remember to do laundry and shop for healthy food and, you know, maybe go get um, their, their WIC or food stamps or whatever it's called in the locale that you're in. So there's a lot going on there when you have children and even animals that can get overwhelming really fast. Other impacts of having an addict in, as a parent in the family. Approximately half of pediatric AIDS cases result from injection drug use or sex with injection drug users by the child's mother. So half of pediatric AIDS cases are completely preventable. Um, the other half would be, obviously, those children um, who were born to mothers who had AIDS or HIV when they were before they even got pregnant. And um, so there was a risk there with having the baby, whether the baby would be born with HIV. Um, again, a whole other class. But, you know, that's a big number. Half of them are preventable. The full range of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders in the United States might be as high as 2%. So two out of every 100 children. So, you know, you figure... 20 children in a first grade class. So out of five first grade classes, there's two children in there who have some level of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder because their parent, their mother, drank while she was pregnant. That's a big number. It's a lot bigger over in Great Britain, but it's still a big number. Cocaine-exposed children often require special education estimated at $23 million annually. So the parent using while he or she is pregnant, well, not he, huh? the parent using while she is pregnant um, can potentially have far-reaching ramifications on the child even before he or she is born. So psychologically, physical or verbal abuse. Again, I want you to put yourself in the head of the addict who is struggling to deal with life on life's terms, who doesn't have good coping skills, who is probably depressed and anxious, dopamine system is completely out of whack. 
I don't even like thinking about being in that person's head, okay? That is a really scary, really horrible place to be. I can understand why they want to make it go away. Now, take that person and put extra stress, even just a little bit of extra stress on them, or make them feel like they're being judged or the one thing that is helping them deal with life on life's terms, their addiction, is a bad thing or is going to be taken away. You can see where they might get defensive, which often leads to physical or verbal abuse because they don't get a little defensive. It's all or nothing. You know, they're not going to be a little irritated. They're going to be freaking ticked off, which can escalate. Their behavior is erratic. You don't know whether you're going to get happy addict, angry addict, sleepy addict, depressed addict. Um, so the people in the family, you know, when, when Jim Bob comes home from work, we don't know if he had a good day or a bad day. We don't know if he's been using or he hasn't using, been using. So everybody in the family is kind of walking on eggshells just to try to avoid putting that extra little bit of stress on Jim Bob that could make him lose his stuffing. All this put together can lead to child neglect, which can have a traumatic impact. Now, do all addicted parents addict, um, neglect their children? No. You know, I, no, they don't. But we see that there is a significantly greater likelihood that it will happen in a family where there is an active addict. This child neglect can have a traumatic impact because, again, the child is not getting his or her own needs met. If you think back to the Ericksonian model of uh, psychosocial development, you have the first stage when the child is an infant, trust versus mistrust. So when the child is an infant, if he or she is always met with a bottle when he or she cries, then they can't learn to interpret their own internal signals. Or if he or she is just left in the crib to cry it out, always, that can also have an impact on the child feeling like they are not safe. Now, again, sometimes you can let a child cry. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if a child is left for hours on end um, in a bed and they've got a bottle there, they've got a binky there, I'll come in and change them every six hours if I have to, that's very different than being an attentive parent that thinks the child needs to learn a little self-soothing. So I, I want to be clear there that there, everything is on a continuum. Modeling of poor coping behaviors. We already talked about that. Don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. That applies to everybody in the family, not just the children, but also the significant others, um, grandma, grandpa, etc. We don't talk about this problem. We don't trust anybody with this information. And... It's not safe to have feelings. It's not safe to be angry at the addict. It's not safe to do anything but walk on those eggshells, which is stressful. The family starts to feel shame and guilt because they're having to, and getting ahead of myself again, but they're having to push away other people because they can't talk about what's going on. They're starting to lose the energy to be able to interact with others in a meaningful way. Um, because they don't have the social support for the elephant in the room. 
And it's a pretty pink elephant. Socially, there's social isolation. Unless the significant others have already started going to something like Al-Anon or Celebrate Recovery or some other support group or place where they can talk about having a loved one who is addicted, then they probably feel like they can't anticipate what's going to happen next. They don't understand exactly what's going on. They start to feel some shame because they're not sure if uh, maybe something they're doing is adding to the addict's stress and causing this behavior. Addicts are really good at minimizing, rationalizing, and blaming. The I wouldn't have to do this if you would. Fill in the blank. <clears throat> Socially, the family really works to project that perfect facade. And when everything's crumbling down inside the house, keeping the perfect facade on the outside of the house is really difficult. Um, if you think about it, if you've been depressed or if you've been sick and you just you haven't felt like cleaning, you haven't felt like doing a lot of stuff. I know my house kind of rapidly deteriorates if I get really sick. I'm just like, no, <laughs> the floors are not going to get mopped today. It's just not going to happen. So your external environment generally reflects your internal situation. So if you are dark and overwhelmed and chaotic on the inside, it's probably going to re reflect that on the outside or it's going to be the exact opposite and the addict will be rigidly compulsive about cleaning because that's the one thing they can control. So you've got, again, two extremes. You don't have anything in the middle. Homelessness. Yeah, this is a problem for the whole family. If Jim Bob goes out, loses his job because he got caught drinking at work too many times, gets a DUI, uh, can't work anymore, loses his job, they um, default on the mortgage, they get kicked out of their house, they can't get into any sort of um, apartments because they don't have enough money for the first, last, and security, so now they're homeless. That's a, that's a problem. What is the impact of this problem? Now you've got stressed out adult family members, stressed out child family members acting out, and they can be physically, emotionally, cognitively just in a shambles. And the person with the addiction is also physically, emotionally, cognitively probably starting to fall apart. So how productive do you think they're going to be? What impact do you see this family having on society? Because now they're not contributing in the workforce. They are homeless. They are having difficulty. Um, basically dealing with life on a day-to-day -day basis. Their health is probably going to deteriorate, which means they're going to rely more on health services that are... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Subsidized. It adds cost to the overall budget, if you will, <clears throat> of the community. Placing family in high-risk situations we talked about. And children start to develop symptoms of depression, anxiety, nightmares, and what we call um, chronic 
PTSD. If an adult, when a child is little, when a child is, say, five, if the parent goes away, the child can't function on their own. That is kind of life-threatening. If a five-year-old is left in the house for three days, that's kind of life-threatening If from the child's point of view. Like, I don't, I have no idea how to function. 25-year-old, that's something completely different. But if a young child experiences things that are beyond their realm of ability to cope, that threaten their health, safety, welfare, and experience, Exposed to those things repeatedly, they can develop PTSD symptoms. And um, the video we watched in the last class kind of hinted at that, that these early childhood experiences of neglect were not talking necessarily um, something that would meet the level of abuse, but childhood neglect starts to change the way the brain forms in children whose brains are forming just so amazingly rapidly. So let's talk about the community for a minute. Um, are there any questions? I don't see any. Okay. If you have any, please feel free to ask them. Stop me. You know, I'm good with that. Um, community health. America's top medical problems can be directly linked to drug abuse. Wow. Okay. So what does that mean? And this comes from the CDC website. Uh, tobacco contributes to 11 to 30% of cancer deaths. Now, can they find a direct correlation one-to-one? No. But they can find a high correlation, um, you know, 60, 70, 80% of the time, this is what happens. Heart disease is correlated with abuse of tobacco, but also cocaine, ecstasy, amphetamines, and steroids. So people who abuse these drugs... Um, are putting themselves at greater risk for heart-related problems. And bloodborne illnesses, one-third of AIDS cases, and most cases of hepatitis C are associated with injection drug use. So we see why injection drug use makes people um, a priority case for admission to treatment. Between the... Um, producing, if you will, children who are born with HIV, as well as adults that are acquiring HIV or hepatitis, um, yeah, this is kind of getting to be a big issue. The National Bureau of Economic Research reports there's a definite connection between mental illness and addiction. And you're probably sitting there going, yeah. Um, <laughs> but hey, we had to say that to start out the slide. Um, people who've been diagnosed with a mental health disorder at some point in their lives are responsible for consumption of 69% of the alcohol, 84% of the cocaine, and 68% of the cigarettes. That's an unbalanced proportion. So we look at these, and they didn't look at all the different drugs and all that kind of stuff, but these are the three big ones. And, yeah, it's, it's kind of unbalanced. So we see that there is a correlation between these two, which means, and I'll say it in every single class, co-occurring disorders are the expectation, not the exception. 
we know that people are going to try to feel normal. It's a survival mechanism. When they feel not okay, they're going to try to feel normal. And sometimes that means they turn to addictions of some sort. Socially, substance abuse costs the U.S. over $484 billion, with a B, billion dollars annually. So you're asking yourself, well, where does all that stuff go? You know, that's a lot of money. Healthcare. Not only are we talking about substance abuse treatment, detoxification, but we're also talking about health care for illnesses that were caused because of the addiction and accidents and injuries that were caused while under the influence of the substance or engaging in the addiction. Lost earnings. If people are in the hospital, if they are desperately depressed, if they are unable to clean up long enough to go to work, then they may lose time from work at the very least, but they may lose their job. Now, it is important to realize that roughly 60% of people who have an addiction are employed full-time. So having an addiction or having a full-time job does not mean that that person's fine. 60% of people that have an addiction are employed full-time. Now, are they great employees? Probably not. That is the other thing we need to look at. It's lost earnings from the company. If you've got an employee that shows up, sits in a chair, and doesn't do much all day long except for be a warm body, that's very different than an employee that comes to work and busts tail all day long to ensure that the company succeeds. Crime, including domestic violence. So we're paying for the um, increased number of cops. We're paying for beds in jail. We're paying for jail facilities. We're paying for um, court systems. We're paying for drug courts. There's a lot of money that goes into not only catching, prosecuting crime, but also sort of doling out the consequences to the offender. Child welfare. We've got entire systems that are dedicated to do nothing but watch out for the welfare of children because people are not always able to understand what's best for a child. They may be caught up in their own stuff. They may have had bad role models as, as children. You know, I'm not excusing the behavior. I'm saying they learned it from somewhere, and as a result, sometimes this is continued intergenerationally, therefore we have to have a child welfare system in place. Work-related and vehicular accidents, you know, if people are using while they're drinking, using while they're drinking, using while they're at work, using while they're driving, um, and even using while they're out doing yard work or something. Um, they can have accidents, and those all go towards our cost, the community's cost. And you're like, well, if they get hurt and they have insurance, they go to the hospital. Well, yeah, but then that cost gets spread across everybody with that insurance company. Um, So you've got to really look at the big picture, not just the immediate, well, they paid for it. 
Homelessness. 31% of homeless people have an addiction. Now let that sink in for a second. 31%. That means one out of three people who are homeless have an addiction. And this is another one of my soapboxes, so you're going to have to bear with me on a little uh, diatribe for half a second. Um, Some people are homeless because of mental illness. Some people are homeless by choice. They are cognitively intact. They are able to make decisions about their own health and welfare, and they are choosing to lead a nomadic lifestyle. So just because someone's homeless doesn't mean they're an addict. That being said, one out of every three do have an addiction, and imagine how much harder it is to protect yourself and live a healthy life, nomadic lifestyle if you've also got an addiction. Drugged driving, 10 to 22% of crashes involve alcohol. Now, that's just alcohol. We're not talking about cocaine, ecstasy, spice, marijuana. There are a lot of other drugs, and some of the synthetic marijuana that my clients had used before they came in is, you know, really wicked stuff. Um, there, are, there are lots of reports from ERs of people being in week-long, two-week-long psychotic episodes after ingesting some of the synthetic marijuana. So you can only imagine how good of a driver they are. But I digress. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorders cost the U.S. over $4 billion, again, that's a B, annually. And you're thinking to yourself, huh? How can that be? Well, there's more than just special education. People with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, one of the key cognitive features is they cannot anticipate consequences and they don't learn from experience. So there are a lot of people in the criminal justice system and there are a lot of people in treatment with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders that have not been diagnosed, they are making the same mistakes. If you look at a rap sheet and this person keeps getting caught for petty theft, you know, the entire rap sheet, there's nine charges of petty theft, and they've been caught and convicted every single time. The average criminal kind of learns, you know, well, maybe I shouldn't, if I'm going to steal things, maybe I should think about a different way to do it. Not so with FASD. They don't see how one connects to the other. Same thing with addiction recovery. We have a lot of people who come through treatment two, three, four, five times. And every time we do, every time that person comes back through, we say, okay, Jim Bob, tell me about what happened. What triggered this relapse? And it sounds like the same thing every time. Now, part of that, not everybody who sounds like that has fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Part of that is the addiction because the addiction is very powerful. And a lot of people, when they're on that pink cloud, stop going to meetings, stop doing all the things they need to do in their relapse prevention plan. So we do see a similar pattern for people each time. But there are some definite differences. If it seems like Jim Bob is just going back out and walking in the same exact pattern and can't tell us why, 
and can't tell us how those actions led to the relapse, then we might want to start looking for some cognitive issues. We can treat it. We can help with social work and linking and all that sort of stuff, case management. Um, we can help people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, um, especially on the lower end of the spectrum, lead pretty normal lives. But we have to understand how their brain works and help them understand how it works and put things in place. Violence, at least half of major crimes, were related to illicit drugs. So we've got physical violence, and what do we know? If somebody is exposed to violence, there's a risk of them developing PTSD. So then you have the addict who may develop PTSD, as well as any bystanders who were sort of secondary victims or um, unintended victims of this violence. You know, Drive-by shootings. Um, you know, you can think of all kinds of violent crimes that occur directly or indirectly as the result of drugs or drug trafficking. And child abuse. At least two-thirds of patients in drug abuse treatment centers say they were abused as children. That's a big number. So how is it that they got that way? And this is where we're talking again about the interge intergenerational transmission of inappropriate coping behaviors. I try to stay away from saying transmission of addiction because I think we're teaching behaviors that lead a person to a point where nothing else is actually getting the job done. But these people were abused as children, which set them up potentially to develop addictions later in life. Now, statistics are kind of funky because two-thirds of patients in drug abuse treatment centers were physically or sexually abused. How many patients, how many people who were physically or sexually abused never went into drug abuse treatment centers? You know, so I don't want you to think that every person who comes through your doors was abused. Some were abused, some were neglected, um, but not all of them. And it's important to kind of separate that out and also to understand that not every abuse victim becomes an addict because after their trauma, they are provided with healthy coping skills, supportive environments, effective treatment, a variety of biopsychosocial interventions that help them figure out how to deal with that and integrate it instead of fighting against it for the rest of their life. Socially, the Florida Youth Substance Abuse Survey and many of the other ones, um, you have a list of different risk and protective factors that the risk factors make it more likely for people in that community to use or make it more likely for a person to use or become addicted. And the protective factors obviously make it less likely. In a community where there is, there is high level of addiction, residents feel less of a sense of connection to the community. And this is a risk factor for the development of addiction. So you have a situation where 
the community actually is sort of supporting the development of addiction because nobody feels connected. Nobody feels like they need to have each other's back. Nobody feels like they have an obligation to um, maintain the community. There's a lot of neighborhood disorganization and rapid changes in neighbor neighborhood populations due to poverty, due to homelessness, due to um, people going to jail, and due to people who don't have addictions and do, who do have the means moving out of that situation. So then you're creating more of a situation in that community that is supportive of drugs, where drugs are more the norm instead of something to get rid of. Residents may be at or below the poverty level in a community where there is high addiction. Does poverty make people use? No. <laughs> no, not at all. But most people who have significant addictions will spend the majority of their money, if not all of it, on their addiction, which puts them at or below the poverty level because they are, you know, smoking it away, gambling it away, whatever the case may be, which causes extreme economic de deprivation not only for the person or for the family, but in the community because that's putting a huge drain on all of the um, public support resources that are out there. So addiction can have direct and indirect effects on the family and community. Financially, we talk about homelessness and income loss. That can affect the family, obviously, but then when you have a bunch of people, when you have a high homeless population in your community, it starts having deleterious effects because the shelters are full. If the shelters are full, then the people who are homeless may be getting arrested more for vagrancy or whatever the charges are. I don't know. Um, but it becomes a social problem. Physically, the, the addict as well as the people who care about the addict experience stress-related illnesses. Um, there's just, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to argue with that, so I'm not going <laughs> to belabor it. People are at a greater risk for developing blood-borne illnesses whether it be transmitted through, and I should say, um, I don't know, illnesses in general, um, bloodborne being your um, hepatitis, your HIV, but you've also got illnesses that people can um, get from contact, and, you know, like MRSA, and that becomes a huge problem, because you take somebody who has very little immune system, they have an open wound, the MRSA bacteria or virus or whatever it is gets in there, um, and that's highly, highly, highly contagious. Then everything they touch then becomes a source of transmission. There's increased illness in the family. So not only, you know, you have Jim Bob, and if you have children, you know what it's like, um, you know, especially when they come back after Thanksgiving break. 99 times out of 100, I think, <laughs> everybody ends up getting sick because you went to visit relatives and relatives bring with them the bugabugas that they are immune to, which are not the same as the ones that 
your children are immune to. So somebody ends up getting sick. When one person in the household gets sick, a lot of times the entire household ends up coming down with it eventually. And usually it's not all at once. It's in a successive nature. So people get sick, which puts increased stress on the family, but it also means that the adults in the family are not going to be able to work. You know, they may have to call out from work because they're too sick. The adults in the family may also have to call out from work because the children are sick. So if you're creating an unhealthier, if that's a word, <laughs> relate, um, environment in the household, it increases illness in the family, um, which, you know, has community effects as well as financial effects for the family and just, you know, emotional effects for the family. Who wants to be sick all the time? Socially, the family is isolated. There's very little connection to the neighborhood. You may not know your neighbors. Um, you may not care to know your neighbors. Don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. You just kind of smile and wave while you go by, which creates a situation where children don't feel like they have the ability to make friends. They don't feel like they've got a support system. Parents don't have a support system. Um, there's shame, there's guilt, trauma, stress, depression. Remember, depression is related to hopelessness and helplessness. Everything I've talked about so far, you know, thinking about being a person in that situation, you can really understand how they would feel hopeless and helpless. Increased family and social costs due to child neglect. Um, you know, if child neglect is in the family... Um, or in the situation, you may not get to the point where you have child welfare involved, but you may get to the point where you're getting called down to Little Johnny's school every other Friday because he's acting out in school and he is unable to control his stress and his stress-related impulses at this point. Um, part of this is because he hasn't had the... Um, develop the connection with the parent because the parent is emotionally absent. Many addicts see their addiction as not hurting anyone but themselves. When provided with an objective evidence to the contrary, using the frames approach, we can assist with increasing motivation for treatment. Now, the frames approach is talked about in tip 35, but real quickly, you provide feedback. This is objective evidence. We're not saying you're a bad parent. We're saying, you know, it seems like when you're using little Johnny, you get called down to the school a whole lot more for little Johnny's acting out. What do you think that's about? Um, putting the responsibility, our responsibility, squarely on the shoulders of the person with the addiction. When they're ready to change, when they're ready to do the next right thing, we will be there to help them, but we can't make them drink. We cannot make them feel or do anything. Um, a is something that I'm drawing a blank on right now. <laughs> Whoops. M is provide a menu of options. E, empathetic responding. So we want to be there. We want to be supportive. We want to be empathetic. Um, Oh, A is for advice. There we go. Because they may say, yeah, you know, you're right. 
when I am using, I do get called down to the principal's office a lot more. How can I help little Johnny? I just, I'm at my wit's end with him. And in reality, that's probably true because the addict probably does not see the connection or even if he or she does, doesn't know what to do about the connection. But he or she is probably very motivated to help little Johnny. So he'll say, what can I do? We give advice, and I don't like that word. We're taught in graduate school not to ever give advice as clinicians, but um, I kind of put advice and menu of options together. Provide them with options of what they can do, and then help them by empathetic listening, figure out what they are motivated and willing to do. And elicit, don't lecture. If you've ever watched, and I think most of us have at one point in our lives, and watched an episode of Cops where they arrest somebody who's been using drugs and the officer sits there and lectures the person about how they're doing all the wrong things and they're going to ruin their life and this, that, and the other. It, it's like dragging your fingernails down a blackboard to me because you know what? The addict already knows this. It's kind of like when you're talking to someone who is suicidal and being afraid to say the word suicide because, you know, maybe they hadn't thought of it. Oh, they've thought of it. They've chosen not to do it. In the case of addiction, the addict has thought about it and probably realizes some of the consequences, but they don't know how to do anything differently. So lecturing them often just makes them feel judged and in many cases highlights how little the person who's doing the lecturing really understands about what's going on. So elicit from them some of the challenges that arise when they are using. What are some of the things that are different? What are some things that they dislike most? But then, like they talked about in the lecture last time, um, it's important to realize that you can... Um, <clears throat> get some benefit and we have to find the help the client find a way to meet that benefit in a healthier more productive sort of way